Bom bom bits, a bowl full of chips. Bom bom bits, with Chappy and Pip. Bom bom bits, two young brothers. Bom bom bits, talking college football. Bom bom bits, and life and humor. And some funny ass clips. So relax and unwind with a bowl full of chips. College football fans, let me ask you a question. Are you ready for some college football talk? Wait, now that was a dumb question. Take two. Actually, let's get to our spring question segment, part two. That's right. On our last national podcast, Bipster and I split open the Power Five conferences and began asking the questions that hover around last year's successful teams and this year's hopefuls and what things they need to get sorted out before the kickoff in 19 weeks, Bip. 19! That's not just the drinking age in Canada. It's the dwindling amount of time we have until toe meets leather out in the islands of Hawaii between the University of Hawaii Warriors and the University of Arizona Wildcats. Yes, sir. As spring football is starting to come to a close for many teams out there, these issues still exist and will continue until tough hits turf this fall. No issues here, though. We are a bowl full of chips, the podcast that brings football closer. This is Captain Chappie speaking, and uh, I am joined by my co-pilot, uh, Admiral Bip. Bip, uh, how are the skies? <laughs> well done, Chappie. Well, my daughter's turning five in a few days, power five, if you will, and she's having two separate parties. So it's fitting that we will be diving into our second celebration of power five spring questions on this episode of A Bowl Full of Chips. And how does the night skies... Uh, Bode for you there, my brother. Well, uh, first off, uh, happy birthday to little Ruby. And isn't it better to have one power five than a group of five? I don't know how people with multiple uh, children uh, beyond five can do it. I mean, <laughs> yeah, shout out to former NC State great Philip Rivers. Um, I, I can't, I mean, outside of the gobs and gobs of money for the assistance and aids that I'm sure he, he has for his nine or 10 children. I myself am not uh, am am someone that can admit that I would not be able to handle more than about three or four. <laughs> yeah, no, no, thank you. <laughs> Certainly not all at the same time. But uh, yeah, th- things are well, man. And you know what makes me feel really good is next Monday when it's tax day, my taxes are done. It took me probably about little snippets of time for about a month, but I I did them. I'm I'm one of those people that still prefers to do my own and and save yep. a buck here or there um yep. plus you know i i kind of like the challenge of it i'm i am a little bit of a math nerd um as, <laughs> as our analytics will show but um got it done and uncle sam is not taking anything from me more than what i had already given uh nor is it looking like i'm likely to be audited so crossing my fingers that that holds true so uh, a little no job in the pocket yeah so <laughs> it's good well um We thank you once again for listening and for joining in on our passion. We're all about thanks and don't ask much in return, but if it suits you and you know a friend or two that could use a college football snack, hit that share button for us and text, tweet, or email our link to those in need. And to help make this podcast work for you and bring you more of what you want, feel free to interact with us on Twitter or email. I am at champion lit, or I'm sorry, at champion underscore lit. And I am at BFC BIP. 
no underscore. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and uh, you can also send emails to bowlfullofchips at gmail.com. So whatever is your preferred method, do it. And normally, Bip and I, we do a, a one-person shout-out on this segment. Today, we wanted to thank all those of you who have followed Bip and I on Twitter and who have been listening to the podcast. Our numbers are increasing, which is great to see. Um, I mean, we would probably still be doing this anyway if the numbers weren't increasing, but it certainly bodes well. And as those numbers increase, that only intensifies our um, our work ethic even more, and, and we're going to bring you the better product that you're desiring. So we really appreciate your interaction, your loyalty, and the resources that help us produce with Polish. So, Bip, you ready for round two? You know it. Sweet. Well, it's second down, so let's pull up the call chart and make things happen. Again, we're going into the Power Five and stressing the areas of need and trying to give our take on the answers that spread the bigger spread through the bigger patches of the college football landscape, kind of like a checklist for the teams with the most lofty expectations. So, Bip, let's give people the answers that they're looking for. All right. Uh, You want to start us off with the ACC question today? Sure. And I'm going to go with who takes the Coastal this year? Now, last year it was kind of up in the air, and we, we all knew that the Atlantic was going to be taken by Clemson. Syracuse gave him a little bit of a run, but the Coastal was really up in the air with a lot of teams that really underachieved Miami looking at you. Um, but this year, I think... Looking at you. <laughs> that's right. And, and they'll be the favorite again this year, especially with the transfer portal and, and all the help yeah. that they've had with that. Um, and, and also the NCAA who... Um, allowed for another transfer waiver. So uh, what a hardship that uh, Tate Martell had to face at Ohio State. But that's another another topic for another day. I'm going to go with um, – I, I, I want to just kind of maybe answer my, my own question a little bit here and, and say look out for the Virginia Tech Hokies as when I was trying to get a, a feel for um, who the Coastal had this year as I was trying to come up with a question for the ACC – uh, I, I knew that they were hit by the hit hard by the transfer portal. However, they still return many key pieces, especially on defense, where they return the majority yeah. of their starting D. Um, it wasn't really a, a great defense last year, but they were extremely young with 11 defensive players making their first start at some point in the season. And Dax Hollifield really came on strong and should challenge for all ACC honors this year. Mm-hmm. Uh, additionally, Rayshard Ashby led the team in tackles last year and should combine with Hollifield to give the Hokies one of the best group of linebackers in the conference. Offensively, they returned Ryan Willis and Demond Hazelton, who developed quite a connection last year and look to build upon that uh, this year. And Willis is one of my my favorite under the radar uh, quarterbacks in the country. He's a tall guy, strong arm with a lot more mobility than than a lot of people expect. When he transferred from Kansas, I thought, ooh, Virginia Tech gets a, a Kansas transfer. <laughs> but he really yeah. uh, <laughs> stepped up when Jackson went, got hurt and and um, filled in uh, more than more than admir- admirably. Uh, he gives them a a real shot in the arm offensively. Uh, but more than anything, I took a look at their schedule. And it's a schedule that really bodes well for the Hokies as they start off at Boston College, but then they're at home three straight weeks against Old Dominion. And that game will be circled to avenge last year's embarrassment for sure. Uh, And added to that, Eric Kuma transferred from Virginia Tech to Old Dominion. Um, So there's some more fuel to the fire. They then have Furman and Duke. Um, and after those, they, they, after that three cake uh, or three weeks stretch of, uh, 
potential cupcakes. They travel to Miami, um, but then they have Rhode Island and North Carolina, both at home. So they should be able to prepare for uh, Miami a good amount, considering uh, the seemingly easy games surrounding that trip to Coral Gables. They then travel um, to Notre Dame after a bye week, and Notre Dame travels to Michigan the week before, and then they jump back into their ACC schedule, um, having Wake at home, traveling to Georgia Tech, and then coming back home for Pittsburgh and finish the season off with their rivalry game against Virginia. So that schedule really sets up the Hokies to have a favorable result, both in the ACC and the national landscape. So my question will be, can they step up to the task and take advantage of what seems to be um, kind of a fluffy schedule at the beginning of the season and um, take advantage of of so much returning um, experience on the defensive side of the ball, Chappie? Yeah, I would say, you know, right now as we stand, Virginia Tech is is my pick for the Coastal as well. Um, Miami will be good. And I think that those two, when they when they square off, that's going to decide the Coastal, uh, the Coastal winner. But you, you have to wonder how these new transfers from or to Miami are all going to fit together. I mean, you can't just take talent and put them all in a room together and expect that chemistry is just going to come natural. Right. Um, you know, so the good thing is that many of their transfers were there and transferred into the school for this second semester. Um, they've been in the weight room together. They've been doing, you know, uh, UTAs together and, and been going through spring ball for the most part. But, uh, you know, e- even in saying that and, and the other thing at Miami, Manny Diaz, this is his first head coaching job. So, yeah, you, I mean, he's certainly been untested as the as the lead man, uh, certainly has two very good coordinators that he's brought in and they've done great things at their respective institutions. But, you know, again, how do all these pieces fit? Right. Um, And and we saw what happened last year uh, at rival Florida state with a new coach coming in, coming off of a disappointing season for the Seminoles um, with a lot of personalities on the same team. Uh, Manny Diaz could take them and mold them into something great, or he could see things slip away like Willie Taggart did in his first year in Tallahassee. Yeah, and and that game, by the way, uh, I think you mentioned it is is at Hard Rock Stadium, uh, so it's a home game for Miami. Should be rocking. Um, you know, the Canes have that opener against Florida on on week zero, the mm-hmm. the, uh, the Camping World kickoff, and um, you know, so that'll be interesting to see. But then they've got to play. I think North Carolina is going to be a team that's going to cause more trouble for people than than it would appear. I mean, Mac Brown will always have my respect as a head coach. I don't know if he still quote unquote has it in terms of, you know, staying fresh with everything, but I tell you what he did do is he brought in also a very good set of coordinators. He brought in the former offensive coordinator from Ole Miss who lit up the scoreboard the last couple of years. And he also brought in Jay Bateman as his defensive coordinator who was at army the last couple of seasons and army, as we saw, had a stifling defense. They, yeah. they limited the Houston Cougars who were, I think, eighth in the country in, in total offense last year, limited him to seven points and really just a miserable showing in that um, <laughs> Armed Forces Bowl last year. So um, I think that it'll really be between, between those two teams, but don't sleep on Pitt either. Uh, and, and I know that last year Pitt won the Coastal in probably the ugliest fashion, and I say that even <laughs> uglier than my Northwestern Wildcats. Right. Northwestern basically went through and had one blemish on their conference record. And that was a three point loss in the last minute to a very good Michigan football team. Uh, Pitt went six and two, which looks good on paper, but then you see they finished 
seven and seven overall, seven and six if you don't include the bowl game. So, um, you know, they they didn't have a, a very polished showing, but, you know, they bring back Kenny Pickett at quarterback. Uh, the jury's still out on him. But, uh, you know, their playmakers at wide receiver are going to be pretty good. Maurice French, um, Tassir Mack, <laughs> and Aaron Matthews coming back at that wide receiver spot. They do lose um, Areo Lopez, but um, I think that there's enough talent and depth at that wideout spot. Uh, big key for them is going to be on the offensive line. They, they're going to be bringing in four new starters, and they lose a good amount of their front seven. Uh, but, you know, the word is that uh, – Narduzzi has recruited well enough to fit his system. And so we'll kind of see. And Rashad Weaver at defensive end had 14 tackles for loss and six and a half sacks last year. So that's a good force to have up front. Narduzzi likes to bring in junior college talent. And, and you know, he's a competitor. He uh, beat Clemson a couple years ago, obviously won the, the coastal last year. So don't give up on the Pitt Panthers just right away. But I will say you can please give up and throw away those newer uniforms that they just unleashed. Did you see those, Bip? <laughs> yep. The uh, yeah. the awful-looking uh, yellow, the very plain Jane, uh, white unis. And I get it. It's a throwback to their their 70s uh-huh. days with Tony Dorsett. But, yeah, uh, eh, snooze. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yep. Uh, moving on. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, well, so what my... about you, Chappie? What about uh, what's your biggest question? Uh, question number two for the ACC. Well, question number two for me, we're going to go down to Raleigh, North Carolina, and my question is, what is NC State going to look like offensively? They lost a lot of their key pieces. First of all, they lost their offensive coordinator, Eli Drinkwitz, who is now the new head coach at Appalachian State, who fills in for the departed Scott Satterfield, who went to Louisville in the ACC. They lose uh, seven-year college player, Ryan Finley. Um, They lose their top running back. They lose top two receivers, and then three offensive linemen from what was considered to be one of the best offensive lines in college football. So is there enough in the cupboard to keep their nine-win seasons that Dave Doran seems to be habitually producing? Is there going to be enough talent overall to to uh, to do that? So at quarterback, I think that they have a, a pretty good replacement in Bailey Hockman. Now, he was a one-time four-star recruit at Florida State, transferred over, and basically redshirted last year, was into the system at uh at at nc state and um you know the the early preliminary thoughts on hockman is that he he'll be serviceable obviously it it is going to be a step down from ryan finley just in his um you know his knowledge of the offense and the way that he sees the field but i think hockman provides him a little bit better of an athlete uh maybe a little bit more lively arm and, and so that'll be interesting to see how that fits in with the dynamic of this uh, wide open offense. Ricky Person will step in at running back, and he was a very highly touted recruit last year, uh, carried the rock, and he's kind of a shorter, squattier guy, but uh, man, those legs are thick, and, and he can run over tacklers. It's going to take more than one person, pun intended, to, to bring Ricky down. Um, wide receivers, they bring back Amika Amezi, Thayer Thomas, and C.J. Riley, who are their number three, four, and five receivers. So they lose the top two uh, to the draft, but uh, bringing back three, four, and five certainly doesn't hurt. They also bring in transfer Tabari Hines, who was originally at Wake Forest, and then he transferred out and played a season at Oregon, and now he's a grad transfer coming in to Raleigh. And also redshirt freshman Devin Carter, who uh, sat out last year, got familiar with the program and and with what was needed of him, but there's high hopes for that youngster at the wide receiver spot as well. On the offensive line, um, they're bringing in a couple of guys who 
got a, a few snaps. So Emmanuel McGirt played 26 snaps last year. Grant Gibson played 37. Doesn't really bode uh, a lot of confidence, but I was listening to an interesting podcast with, I think, Cole Kublik, who works for ESPN and the SEC Network, who was a former offensive lineman at Auburn. And he said that um, from his studies and, and from what research that he was handed, offensive line is one of the positions that seems to be least affected by departure. Because typically what you have, BIP, is it's not like those skill positions where um, – guys are expected to play right away. Typically offensive linemen at the college level, unless you're a, a stud or unless you are really, really thin, you start to play as a redshirt freshman, redshirt sophomore, or junior, senior. Right. Right? So you're, you're looking at guys like, um, you know, who, who have been in the, the program, they've been in the weight room, they've bulked up and they kind of know what's been going on. And they've been working with these uh, previously mentioned all Americans. So yeah, although I will say that there is, there does seem to be something to to be said about um, linemen that haven't played together. Uh, now right. they may have done so uh, within practices on the second team or the scout team or, or whatever have you. But mm-hmm. um, breaking in new linemen, to your point, they're they're big, they're strong, they're experienced, and they've had the practice under their belt. But uh, getting into game situations of knowing where the guy to your left and where the guy to your right is going to be at at given times, especially when there's uh, breakdowns in coverage, when there's blitzers, when there's stunts, um, that'll be one of the bigger questions, um, I I think, for for a line that loses so much. Yeah. And, you know, uh, to be honest, I... um all three of those linemen that they lost were their center and then their left side. So they're going to be protecting Bailey Hockman's blind side. And that's always Mm -hmm. a concern when you, when you drop those linemen that are put on that side, typically because you want to protect your quarterback. So um, I honestly, I see NC state dropping a little bit this year. And I think it's a a product of that Atlantic division being that much more competitive. And um, I'm just, I have a hard time looking at their schedule and seeing how they get nine or 10 wins when you know you've got obviously Clemson and Syracuse typically uh, are going to be there at the top, but Boston College is going to compete this year with AJ Dillon and company. I really like what Wake Forest has the potential to do. Um, so you know NC State could find themselves maybe second from the bottom uh, if uh, if they get maybe an injury or two. So keeping Hockman moving forward and keeping Ricky Person healthy is, is going to be something that is going to be vital for them. And obviously gelling that offensive line, like you alluded to. Yeah. And, and I would agree with you losing so much on offense, uh, Finley Gillespie, their top two receivers, uh, three linemen, you look at their schedule last year, they started off five and zero, but, uh, they beat James Madison, Georgia state Marshall, and then had a couple good victories against Virginia and Boston college. They didn't lose three or four, uh, which were really against their better opponents, Clemson, Syracuse, and wake forest. Their last four wins of the season out of their last five games, Florida State, Louisville, North Carolina, East Carolina. So this is a team that kind of beat up on all of the weaker opponents and lost to their better opponents. Um, now, the losses against Wake Forest, um, was the loss against them was was by four. Syracuse was by 10. But then their bowl game against Texas A&M, they just got bludgeoned 52-13. Uh, yeah. So um, kind of hard to get a gauge on them. But the fact that they didn't really have any quality wins over the entire season um, and then the fact that they lose so much on offense, I'm going to side with you on this one and say that I'm going to uh, bet the the under on whatever their win loss total is uh, heading into the season. Yeah, and um, you know, looking at the ACC Atlantic in recruiting the last four years, um, NC State is 
has is third in that mark. They're, they've ranked 39.5 nationally uh, for the last four years in recruiting. And again, I'm not somebody that puts a ton of stock in recruiting as it right. translates into a four-year process, because obviously, especially with the transfer portal opening up now, um, that number is a lot more fluid. But, um, you know, the other thing that really gives me concern is the fact that they're replacing Eli Drinkwitz with two guys. And I've never really been a fan of co-coordinators. Um, no. So it's Des Kitchings, who is the running backs coach, and George McDonald, who's the receiver coach, which translates into Kitchings is going to call the run plays or kind of design the run package, and McDonald will design the passing package. But what happens when you get down to a pivotal third down or a fourth down uh, position and somebody's got to make the call? So now it's either, uh, you know, do you designate and say, okay, McDonald's going to make the call when we get to this situation or Kitchens is going to make the call, or is it going to be Dave Doran saying, I'm going to make the call. And then you've got three people, um, you know, kind of three chefs in the kitchen, so to speak. And I've been in that situation, right. Biff, where you've got three or four coaches who are saying, no, this is what we should do. No, this is, this is what we should do. That's where I really think you give your trust to one guy and say, you're going to run the show for us. And, you know, we're going to sink or swim with you. So uh, yep. all like the-, the old saying, like the old saying for quarterbacks, if you have uh, two quarterbacks, you have no quarterbacks, yeah, exactly. kind of a similar, similar situation. Right. Yep. So, yeah. As we stand right now, uh, early April, I, I don't see NC State as high as they've been the last couple of years. Maybe a little bit of a rebuilding year this year, but um, mm-hmm. you know, someone to look forward to for 2020, perhaps. Sure. Well, let's bounce to the Big Ten, BIP. And uh, last week, I talked about Michigan State's offense. This time, my question goes to uh, Ann Arbor. And my question is, who's going to carry the Michigan run game? So there was Karan Higdon, who is now going to the NFL and he was a very forceful running back last year. His backup though, Chris Evans is currently not with the team because he's allegedly sorting out some academic issues. Now I've talked to a couple sources and they've said that Evans is in all likelihood going to rejoin the team in the fall. But when you are distanced and when you've got this issue of, okay, academics are what kept you out. Is that going to be hanging over people's heads? Is that, uh, you know, is Harbaugh going to be one of those guys who's going to um, kind of almost off the record, put him off to the side and say, you, you've you put up a question of trust for me to you. Um, and do we go to somebody else? So if he returns still, he doesn't strike me as, as the Big Ten running back that can put a team into the college football playoff. Um, they do bring in four-star freshman Zach Charbonnet from California, and he was supposed to be in this spring, and he was, but um, he missed the spring, had to sit out because of a, quote, minor procedure done on his knee. Now, anytime I see knee and procedure, that's always cause for concern. Now, 6'1", 222, he's got good size, you know, looks like a, a pretty good typical Michigan running back. But, you know, what's his health going to be? Harbaugh's kind of downplaying it, saying he's fine, he's fine. It was really just something that was more uh, uh, a procedural thing and, and just a matter of fact than it is any sort of concern. Um, so there's some people in, in Michigan camp saying that Charbonnet is going to be the guy who eventually takes the spot. Harbaugh's big on Christian Turner, who looked pretty good in the bowl game against Florida and the few carries that he had in the first half before Michigan squandered uh, any hope that they were playing in a bowl game in the second half. And he also had a great three weeks of bowl practices, according to various sources. So it'd be interesting to see how he develops. He's a guy from Georgia. He's got speed, um, you know, from what I understand is a pretty hard worker. So that develops well. 
True Wilson is is another guy who, you know, he's got seniority. He's he's been in the program for a while. He's a former walk-on. He's consistent, but again, not really the Big Ten game-changing back that can propel this team to the next level. So my guess, Bip, is it's probably going to be a combination of Turner and Charbonnet kind of being like a thunder and lightning duo that keeps defenses honest and allows um, Shea Patterson to do what he needs to do. And if somebody can emerge from that duo, then good for Michigan. But um, for the time being, I think for the first few weeks of the season, get used to seeing those two sh- splitting carries for the most part. And if Evans comes back, you know, that'll be really a, a trio of backs that uh, will they'll, they'll ride with the hot hand. But like you talked about in the last podcast with Josh Gaddis coming in, the, the word for Michigan this year is tempo, tempo, tempo. So we might actually see an even lesser amount of these backs getting their due because Patterson, by the sounds of things and by Gaddis's track record, is, is probably going to be putting the ball in the air to a bevy of wide receivers. And why wouldn't you throw to Donovan Peoples-Jones and Nico Collins and Tariq Black and others? Right. Yeah, th- this is the the running back position is one of the biggest reasons why I'm kind of pumping the brakes on the expectations for the Wolverines as they have some lofty expectations as in according to some of these preseason rankings, uh, these way too early. Uh, but isn't that always the case rankings. with Michigan, though? I mean, people I mean, <laughs> they more than any other program are put as high as they are because, as Brady Hoke said, it's Michigan. So, right. And and, uh, you know, it. They lose a ton on defense, and I'm going to put uh, not as much stock into that because Don Brown knows how to get the most out of his defenses, mm-hmm. and it's not like this is the first time that Michigan's had a mass exodus of talent on defense, and they still continue to put up top five numbers uh, nationally. Right. So I think the defense should be okay. But yeah, similar to um, what I was saying at the beginning, the the running back spot is they they don't have a, a true tested um guide it to to tote the rock um and, and more importantly they don't really have any depth so if 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 the injury bug strikes them at the position then what do they do yeah now like you were mentioning uh josh gaddis comes in and and many wolverine fans have called for a change in offensive philosophy from the ground and pound to an air it out offense for a long time now they may f- be forced to do so in 2019 mm-hmm. um just based off of the lack of depth and the potential lack of quality at the position yeah and, you know, some people have asked me, well, what if, you know, if that happens, what happens if Shea Patterson goes down? Folks, this quarterback room at Michigan is well-stocked. Joe Milton, who's the backup, is yeah. by some people's measure better than Shea Patterson and should be the guy that's starting. And so Harbaugh has said in so many words, just like any coach, I mean, that coach speak that, well, all jobs are an open competition and we're going to go with, you know, who's going to have the best camp and who gives us the best chance to win the game, blah, blah, blah. Um, but Milton is a guy that, uh, you know, has a pretty bright future ahead of him. And, um, you know, many people think he'll be the Michigan quarterback of the future, but then behind him is Dylan McCaffrey. So don't be surprised if one of those two guys leaves Ann Arbor and, and goes elsewhere to get their shot because clearly a ton of talent there and, and you can't split it between those two looking into the future. But, um, you know, to answer that question earlier, of what happens if Patterson is off his game. Uh, I, I think they'll be just fine at, at quarterback, especially with Gaddis in charge of, of tutelaging those guys. 
I just made up a word. Yeah, That's I, not really a word. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. And like you mentioned, that group of receivers is going to make anyone look good. So, mm-hmm. um, but stepping over into the other um, division in the Big Ted, my question is, how low does Iowa fall this year? Now, mm-hmm. we all know that they lose their their two um, All-American candidate tight ends, Noah Fant and TJ Hawkinson. Uh, who are both expected to potentially be first-round picks this year. They also lose their top receiver, Nick Easley. Um, now, uh, their their next receivers, um, Smith and Smith-Marset, were actually tied for second on the team uh, in addition to tying with their last name. Uh, they each had 361 yards. Um, but, uh, you know, so that begs the question, did too much production leave from this this offense? The Hawkeyes finished 18th in the country in scoring margin last year with a plus 174. But of their four losses, three of them were by six or fewer, and only one of their wins was uh, by less than 10 points, um, bowl game not included. So this normally bodes well for teams uh, whose majority of losses were close, and they had um, few close wins as when the, when the Hawkeyes won, um, it normally wasn't, uh, very close. Um, however, in addition to the offensive losses that they have, Iowa loses a decent amount, uh, on defense as five, all big 10 selections are gone from 2018's defense. And that doesn't include Jack Hockaday, who was third on the team in uh, total tackles. So, Last year was wide open for the Hawkeyes to take claim to the West, and this year the gap is definitely going to be narrowing, uh, in my opinion, in that division. As um, So kind of a bad timing for a mass exodus of talent from Iowa City. Additionally, their road schedule this year is brutal. They're at Iowa State, at Michigan, at Northwestern, at Wisconsin, and at Nebraska. Additionally, they have home games against Penn State and Minnesota, um, that follow their road games against Michigan and Wisconsin, respectively. So a couple home games they have are following some very tough, very physical, and very talented teams that they'll be playing. So it wouldn't shock me to see Iowa finish as low as fifth or sixth in the West this year in 2019. Wow. But we all know that uh, Kirk Ferentz gets the most out of his team and his and the talent that he's provided there in Iowa City. Um, and so I'll be really intrigued to see how the Hawkeyes fare this year and it may not be as much a, a product of what they have coming back uh, as much as it, as it is how how much more improved the West is going to be this year and how tough that schedule is going to be for Iowa. Yeah, Jeffrey the Greek, if you're listening, uh, pour yourself <laughs> a big, big glass of bourbon, my friend, and calm down. <laughs> uh, yeah, I might I might get a uh, unfollow after that one. <laughs> uh, you might get more than that, my friend. He uh, He doesn't let things die very easily, so... Sure, sure. Um, Yeah, well, here's what I have to say about that. What I've learned about the Iowa Hawkeyes is when you when you think that Kurt Ferentz and his Hawkeyes are going to slip, that's when they rise. Um, I mean, you look at um, the the last case was 2016 when they won the West and basically almost went undefeated. They you know lost to the Michigan State Spartans in the Big Ten Championship, kept them from that goal, and that was a great game, but. Um, I mean, that was a season where they were expected to be, okay, one year away. And, you know, Phil Parker on defense does a great job calling defense, and he's been there for quite a while. He's getting to be one of the godfathers of defense in the Big Ten. Uh, They do lose a considerable amount on their defensive line, which was their strength. But when you bring back A.J. Epinesa, who is a clear-cut All-American, and you add in guys like Chauncey Golston, Cedric Lattimore, Brady Reef, 
Um, Davion Dixon, who was a highly uh, recruited talent, has been cleared academically. There was thoughts that, I mean, he put himself in the transfer portal temporarily, but now that his academics are, are seem to be in order, he's back in Iowa City. Um, I think that their secondary is going to be pretty good. Now, losing Amani Hooker and Jake Gervas is pretty big duo to lose up the middle, but I really like they're, they're deep at corner and Iowa football is, is based on playing physical corner play man to man and allowing your safeties to roam the middle of the field. I agree with you on that schedule. Um, but if you look at their West games, I think that it is a, it's, I don't want to say toss up in the West, but it, it really almost is anybody's game. So um, I think that plays more into favor of the experienced coaches and Kirk Ferentz is the Dean of big 10 coaches. So um, I think Purdue at home is, is certainly winnable at Northwestern is, is going to be a game that could be tough, but um, you know, the Wildcats and the Hawkeyes have kind of traded off victories when the victor is probably the team that shouldn't have won that year. So if you're going to call Northwestern the favorite on October 26th, that might bode well for the, for Iowa. Um, Going to play at Wisconsin is going to be tough, but I really think it's going to be down between them and the Badgers for the West this year. I really uh, see that those two teams are going to be at the top of that side of the Big Ten, and and that game is going to decide it. So, you know, as you look at that one, if Wisconsin has an established quarterback by then, maybe they are the favorite going in. But if they don't, I'm going to roll. I'm going to roll with Nate Stanley as a uh, three-year starter and somebody who does have a pretty big-time arm. There were people who were suggesting that he should have left and gone to the NFL this year. Decided to come back, play one more year, and yeah, losing Fant and uh, Hawkinson at tight end is a loss. But at Iowa, they seem to churn those things out like the Duggars churn out oh, yeah. kids, you know. So um, yep, it's 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 going to be it'll be interesting. But I. I'm going to have to respectfully disagree. I don't see Iowa falling, certainly not to fifth in the Big Ten West. Um, but, you know, that, that's what's and, fun and about And let, so. let me clarify that that I would not put money on them finishing fifth in the West. Um, but you see it as a possibility. However, I see it as a possibility for yeah. sure, considering the fact that they they tied for, uh, you know, with Wisconsin-Purdue. I'm not sure what the tiebreakers were, but, you know, they were essentially tied with three other teams um, after Northwestern. So they're only one spot away potentially uh, from last year. And last year's schedule was a lot more forgiving uh, based off of who they played away from home and where they played those games. It just seems like they're uh, teams that they should be favored against this year, uh, like uh, teams like Minnesota and Purdue are just sandwiched in, in in a wrong spot to where they could get, um, surprised oh, yeah. based off of who they play before or after in the week. Right. So something, something to look out for, for yeah. sure. Well, let's go to the big 12. Um, what's your, what's your question round two for the, the teams of 10 in the big 12 bit. Well, I'm going to continue to, uh, Eeyore on this podcast and say, <laughs> how far does West Virginia fall this year? So similarly to the Hawkeyes, there was a ton of talent that left West Virginia on both sides of the ball. The obvious losses being on offense where they lose Will Greer, Gary Jennings, David Sills, um, and first team, all big 12 tight end, uh, Trayvon Wesco. 
They return a couple of good backs in Kennedy McCoy and Martel Petaway, and Marcus Sims performed really well as their third option last year at, at receiver, but it's hard to lose such a high level of production from your offense in a conference that's nothing but offense. Mm-hmm. Um, and can't forget that they also lose uh, head coach Dana Holgerson. Now, they bring in Neil Brown, who did well at Troy, and uh, but with this being his first big stop in the coaching ranks, and with his teams at Troy kind of being known more for their defensive performances than their offense. I mean, he's a he's an offensive uh, backgrounded coach, uh, but when you look at his Troy teams the past couple of years, they were definitely better defensively than they were offensively. So you have to wonder what kind of transition um, it's going to be from Holgerson to Brown. And then defensively, they lose Big 12 Defensive Player of the Year, David Long, as well as Kenny Bigelow, uh, Drayvon Askew-Henry, who were all um, all conference selections and a couple other key contributors as well. Now, unlike Iowa, their schedule doesn't appear to be as daunting as their road games include Kansas, Baylor, Kansas State, and TCU. However, they do travel to play Oklahoma and Missouri, um, and they they have uh, NC State, Texas, Iowa State, and Oklahoma State at home. So, do the Mountaineers stay in the third or fourth area or uh, third or fourth spot? Uh, within the Big 12, or do they slip down to the 7-8 to eight range? I see more of the latter than I do the former based off of who they lose um, on both sides of the ball, and especially offensively when they're going to be going up against all of the other offensive juggernauts within that conference. Yeah, I, I see them maybe comfortably as a 7-8 or eight win team. One of those teams, kind of like Oklahoma State was this last year, where uh, they might win some games that they're not expected to win, but then, um, you know, struggle in some of the others. I could see them getting hot toward the end of the season, maybe coming up with an upset or two. Um, but yeah, I, I think the good thing for Neil Brown is he's, they're not expecting him to win the big 12 right away. Uh, especially with losing the firepower that you talked about. I mean, the, you know, one of the best quarterbacks in, in school history, one of the best receivers in school history two one of the, two of the best receivers in school history. Um, and then, you know, one of their more prolific coaches in school history as well. I think that, you know, they're West Virginia fans and, um, college football in general are, are going to give Neil Brown a couple of seasons to get it done. Um, which is good for them because it'll give Austin Kendall, their transfer quarterback from Oklahoma, time to settle in. I'm just not sold on Jack Allison as as the guy. I mean, he played in the bowl game last year. He's a transfer from Miami, but there's a reason why they went after Austin Kendall, and Austin Kendall was somebody who um, you know, had some pretty big hopes for him in, in Sooner Nation, but then you bring in Jalen Hurts, and it was like, okay, my talents are – uh, are, are needed elsewhere. I, I just can't be sitting on the bench and, and his coaches agreed. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, it, I agree. West Virginia is going to be a very interesting team this year, but I, I certainly don't see them putting themselves up in the top three of that conference. I see them maybe more in the middle area, but again, kind of a transition year with coaching, but uh, you know, looking ahead to 2020 more so than 2019. Right. So for me, I'm going to go, down to Fort Worth, Texas, and ask, what's the quarterback situation going to be at TCU? So they've got really five guys that they have uh, eligible to play quarterback. Justin Rogers, a redshirt freshman. Michael Collins, who really is the incumbent, if you want to call it that. He filled in for the injured Sean Robinson last year. He was a transfer from Pennsylvania. Um, he, he performed formidably, but you know nothing that's going to uh, give – 
Horn Frog fans uh, a lot of enthusiasm. They also bring in mm-hmm. transfer Alex Delton, who comes in from Kansas State. Um, Matthew Downing, who just recently left Georgia and uh, will be a redshirt freshman playing at, at Fort Worth. But maybe the uh, the bigger name, along with Rogers, who I already mentioned, is four-star Iowa Gatorade Player of the Year, Max Dugan. So um, there's a lot of buzz around Justin Rogers, as he was one of TCU's highest recruits in program history. But he suffered a knee injury at the end of his senior season, and, and it forced him out of all of last year. And he also has what's known as foot drop syndrome, which makes it a risk for him to be out there at all. So essentially what that means is there's some nerve damage to where um, he could basically just collapse, and it's nothing major uh, necessarily. It's just that you know there could be instances where he loses feeling in his legs. So that's always a, a concern in the back hmm. of your mind. But um, I recently saw a Twitter uh, video of him doing some box jumps and and he can leap it pretty good and and he's come out and said you know he's he's gonna give it a, a go he's he's not concerned about his knee he's here to play football and injuries happen and you really can't control that so um but all reports suggest that he's trending toward 100 percent health by fall camp so that's good for tcu uh like i said collins started four games last year going two and two and had a six to two touchdown to interception ratio Delton, who comes over from Kansas State, was more of a uh, a runner than a passer, and TCU is going to need somebody who can spread the ball to their prolific wide receivers, Jalen Rager, Tay Barber, Trevante Heights, and, and others. Um, I think, though, that, like I said, Dugan may have the best opportunity and the biggest upside. Now, like, like I mentioned, he's a four-star player of the year from the state of Iowa, and that was somebody who Hawkeye fans really were, were not happy to see leave. Um, but he can give the Frogs a spark offensively. Either way, I think it's going to come down to one of those two freshmen, either the redshirt freshman Rogers or the true freshman Dugan, provided that neither of them has a pres- freshman performance like the one we saw at Rutgers this last year. Um, <laughs> either way, they should be in good shape as they return every one of their running backs that made significant contributions last season, especially Siwo Olinula. Um, or I'm sorry, Siwo, let me get this right, Olinalua. Um there Say you that go. three times fast, <laughs> even sober. Um, right. and, and like I mentioned, those game-breaking receivers that we already talked about. I like Sonny Cumbie as their offensive coordinator, but we all, we've seen that he is uh, a lot better when he has a quarterback. Last year, he didn't have one. Sean Robinson was uh, bit with injuries a little bit, and then he ended up transferring to Missouri. And then they tried to uh, get the other quarterbacks like Collins and then Grayson Mühlstein to uh, carry the torch <laughs> for TCU and um, something interesting I found out, Bip, they uh, they had 30 guys last year that had, at the point in, their, in time, season-ending injuries. And there were 40 players on their roster. Keep in mind, you have 85 um, who had mm-hmm. at least a one game, who missed at least one game. So um, kind of a lot of, uh, quote-unquote, depth coming back for TCU because of the fact that out of necessity, they had to play some of their younger guys next year. And TCU, I'm telling you right now, they're a team, they're – I don't even want to call them a dark horse to win the Big 12. I know Texas is the frontline favorite, and they're kind of like Michigan uh, with how they played against Georgia last year. There's recency bias. They're the flavor of the year, uh, or at least the flavor of the offseason. But um, if if you look at some of their S&P numbers and if you look at some of the projections and some of the analytics that are out there, um, I kind of did my own analytics, and Texas does not stack up as well as people might think. And uh, I'm saying that, when all is said and done, I think the TCU Horn Frogs could find themselves in a rematch of two years ago in the Big 12 championship with with Oklahoma. 
Yeah, well, I think uh, one thing that uh, Horn Frag Horn Frog fans can be thankful for is that uh, Mühlstein is <laughs> no longer going to be the quarterback after seeing that bowl game against Cal. Uh, fun fun fact though, Mühlstein is nicht hier. <laughs> fun fact though, uh, Justin Rogers actually came in in that game and um, completed one pass for a yard. So he is in his career; he's completed a hundred percent of his passes. So they have yep. that to look forward to. Um, going back to what you were mentioning about uh, their injuries last year. I, I saw recently they actually had to cancel their spring game this year because of injuries and lack of depth. So already things um, not so great out of the gate for the Horn Frogs. Not sure if that is what has happened um, already in the spring for them or if it's a continuation from injuries that carried over from last year, but already not a good sign for, for TCU and Gary Patterson. Now, I, I, I have to go back and look at this, but I thought I saw, and maybe this was just a prank on itself, but I thought I saw that there were reports that he made that announcement on April 1st, and it came out later as an April Fool's prank. So they are going to have some sort of a spring game, but he was just trying to get to people. But ah. uh, if, if that's the case, I think that's kind of an ill-timed and, and a not funny <laughs> uh, prank, especially if you're a TCU fan. Okay. Um, Unless you're in on that sandbagging gig and and you're just waiting to take the Big Twelve by storm, so well, well, yeah, maybe I took the bait and just uh, saw it, uh, breathed by it, and uh, I, I can <laughs> be one of the other victims that Patterson can lay claim to for that. So yeah, how dare you, Ben? <laughs> <laughs> well, Chappie, how about the Pac-12? Uh, what's uh, question number two that you have uh, on the top of your mind for for that conference? Well, being that I cover the Northwestern Wildcats, I'm looking at their week one opponent, the Stanford Cardinal. My question is, which running back will be the guy at Stanford this year? Now, we know that David Shaw, who is a uh, Jim Harbaugh disciple, if you want to call him that, uh, loves the ground and pound, loves to go heavy beef, you know, seven tight ends and uh, a back that's just going to find the crease and and get you the yardage north and south and you're just going to wear teams to death so who's it going to be that guy this year so they've got cameron scarlett who averaged 4.2 yards per carry last year and led the team with eight rushing touchdowns believe it or not um and he never really lost yardage that's what i like about scarlett he had i think a total of seven uh yards lost last year as a ball carrier so that tells you that he He's a pretty physical runner, and he and he gets north and south. He doesn't dance. He doesn't wait around. Um, and that's saying something, considering they had some offensive line issues last year. Um, he's probably going to be the guy to get the start against Northwestern in week one. But word is that Austin Jones, who's a freshman who's coming in, will be the guy very soon. He ranked anywhere from number three to number 10th best running back in this year's recruiting class. He's 5'10", 200 pounds. He's got a low center of gravity and some pretty good vision. Um, they also have Dorian Maddox who averaged 4.5 yards per carry last year and, um, Trevor Spates who averaged 3.7 yards per carry. So as we say, those numbers, people are kind of wondering, well, what happened to the Stanford run game last year? And, and I kind of had that same question as well. So this is a question within a question. They've got to do something to fix that because they were 123rd in rush offense with yeah. these guys a season ago. And the guy named Love. Okay, so Bryce Love, who had some injury issues last year, still all that put together, they were uh, seven from the bottom in rushing, which is way, way out of Stanford uh, standards. Um, so maybe another built-in question is, uh, are they going to go to more of an aerial attack this year? And they kind of had to out of necessity last season. But the good thing for these backs, whoever is going to emerge, is um, – you know, they do have uh, an experienced quarterback in K.J. Costello. They've got All-American tight end Colby Parkinson. 
um, Osiris State Brown, who is the brother of Amon Ra, uh, Michael Wilson, who had a good freshman season last year, and then highly touted freshman Elijah Higgins, all uh, going to be weapons for Costello with the wide receivers position and the tight end receiving tight end position next year. Maybe that can help diversify the offense a little bit until that feature back emerges. Um, like I mentioned, they do start off with Northwestern, who traditionally plays a pretty stout run defense. So um, don't expect anything right away. Don't expect anybody to emerge. But if they can, if they can rip off some uh, big numbers against that Northwestern defense, then things are going to look really good for 2019 for Stanford fans. Yeah, no, that's good, Chappie. I'm also curious to know. Um, I was kind of impressed with Scarlett um, with my limited uh, watching of the of the Cardinal last year. Um, as Bryce Love just couldn't stay healthy, unfortunately, because he was fun to watch um, Mm -hmm. previous year. And that kind of goes into uh, my question for the Pac-12 of how does Stanford get the bad taste of 2018 out of their mouths? Now, Mm -hmm. they they finished uh, with a 9-4 and record, but they started off 4-0, then ended up losing four of their next five. You mentioned how miserable they were in rushing the ball. They were also not very good defensively, which is really not the mark of a a David Shaw-led team. They were 85th. Um, in the country in team tackles for loss, 78th in yards per game allowed, and 122nd in passing yards allowed. And that was with highly talented and all-American candidate for 2019, Paulson Adebo at corner. Um, yeah. So it might not get any easier with 2019 or in 2019 as gone are J.J. whiteside Caden Smith, Bryce Love, and Trenton Irwin on the offensive side of the ball. And defensively, they have some losses as well with Bobby Okariki, Sean Barton, as well as Elijah Holder and Frank Bunkham. The the Cardinal, um, you mentioned that they open up with uh, Northwestern. Their schedule doesn't get any easier as they get past that mm-hmm. game. As as uh, you mentioned, Northwestern travels to the farm in the I'm smarter than you bowl. They then have to uh, travel Nerds. to play. <laughs> they travel to play at USC. Then they travel cross country to play at UCF. And uh, reward for uh, finishing that three game stretch is they return home to play Oregon in a game that you know the Ducks are going to want to avenge from last year's embarrassment. And oh, by the yeah. way, the Ducks play Montana the week before as a pseudo bye week, so they have plenty of time to get ready for Stanford. As if that wasn't bad enough, Stanford still has a home game against Washington, travel to Washington State, and finish the season at home against their two bitter rivals, Cal and Notre Dame. So, mm-hmm. as you mentioned, K.J. Costello is one of the more prolific passers in the country last year, but if if Stanford isn't careful and if they don't find themselves a running game and a better defense, they could find themselves hovering around 500 when all is said and done. Yeah, and and that would certainly put the heat on David Shaw because you know, like you mentioned, this this was not a a Stanford type season, and God, what a what an ugly, awful, boring bowl game between them and Pitt last year, and and I kind of had a feeling going into that game. Yep. Um, I mean, when we did our ESPN bowl pick them and you could rank your confidence picks, that was one of them that was near the bottom for me because I'm like, well they both could look like crap and it's just a matter of, you know, who's going to crap more. So, um, yeah. Yeah. The, the only game that rivaled it was, uh, the one that we, we mentioned, uh, just a few moments ago. Yes. The Cal (laughs) against TCU who can throw more picks bowl. Yeah. 
I, if, if he had one more year of eligibility, maybe uh, Mr. Mühlstein uh, would have thought to transfer to uh, to Stanford or Penn. <laughs> right. Well, so, um, so let's uh, get to our final conference there, Chappie. I'm gonna, I'll, I'll kick it off for us here. And, and my question is, how many times is Texas A&M going to play the, the spoiler role to teams in 2019? So uh, A&M uh, gave Clemson perhaps their biggest scare of 2018 outside of Syracuse. They also took uh, playoff or they took out playoff hopeful LSU in seven overtimes in the last game of their season and uh, took out midseason darling Kentucky also in overtime. In 2019, the Aggies once again have the daunting task of playing Clemson in week two, but this time it's in Death Valley. So I'm not mm-hmm. sure if they challenge Clemson as much as they did last year, but they're still no. a dangerous team. Um, they have Auburn at home a week after, uh, Texas A&M plays Lamar. They play Bama after a bye week and that bye week, uh, takes place, uh, a week, um, takes place a, a week before playing lowly Arkansas and they finish the season playing at Georgia and at LSU in which both teams will almost surely have their sights set on the SEC championship or, uh, the, the college football playoff. Um, so A&M has plenty of opportunity to play the role of spoiler as I don't think that they're going to challenge for the SEC at all this year, but, um, despite the fact that they lose perhaps their two biggest offensive weapons in Travion Williams and Jay Sternberger, um, they, they return Kellen Mond and Jimbo Fisher proves once again, how much of a whiz he is with quarterbacks. Um, their defense is hit really hard by attrition as they lose, um, their top six tacklers and five of their six, uh, top sack guys, but, uh, it's A&M. They can recruit. They have recruited. They have talent all across the board. And Jimbo Fisher, as we've seen in the past, is one of the better coaches in the country. I don't see a nine win season like in 2019. Um, however, look out for those pesky Aggies to be very much a part of how the SEC and possibly the entire country's landscape is, uh, um, unfolds this year. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna beg to differ just a little bit here. I um I do see them as a nine win team, and I'm gonna tell you, Jay Sean Corbin is a name that is gonna become household in the SEC this year. I think he could be an All SEC back. Um, he's he's fast, but he's also thick, and he's he's a physical runner. So he can run away from you, but he can also run over you and and run at you. So. You know their their non conference is is a joke really outside of Clemson and I think that you know Clemson became woke in that game last year and so Dabo and company are going to be ready for the Aggies coming to Death Valley. You know it's going to be at night. It, I think it's already uh, scheduled to be on ESPN. I see Clemson as as at least a couple touchdown favorite in that one uh, going away. But aside from that, I I just don't. Uh, I mean. Alabama is is going to be tough, but that that game in Kyle Field that's something to circle and to look out for um, as as maybe you know playing like you said that spoiler role, um, and then I see them kind of going all the way through until they get to Georgia and LSU, and because of attrition and because of the way the season rolls, um, that could be a situation where Georgia might trip up at home against these spoiler Aggies, and and same with LSU now. I have LSU uh, as one of my teams early on that I think will make the college football playoff this year. Um, but uh, so I don't see them losing to AM in that game, but right. it certainly wouldn't surprise me because of the, the nature of Jimbo Fisher and, and the trend that he has this AM program going. I think that they uh, exceeded their expectation or people's expectations for him last year. I do think that they're getting a little too much preseason love right now. 
Um, I don't see them as a top 10 team to start the season, but um, you know, we'll see how things progress. They certainly have enough warm up to get going. Um, but you know, again, they play in, in the toughest division in college football. Everyone from the West save for maybe Arkansas is going to be good. I, I and I'm even going to say Ole Miss. I think Ole Miss with their two coordinators that they brought in this year and with some of that talent that they have been recruiting. We talked about um, Jerry on Ely and John Reese Plumley. I think that those two could form a pretty good backfield by the end of the season. So look out for them to, to play a little bit of a role in um, spoiling things in the West too. So yeah, it's not a gimme that A&M is, is going to be at the top, but I certainly think that they are in the top uh, in the top three when all is said and done. Yeah, and what will help them this year, they only have four true road games as their game against Arkansas is played at a neutral location. Right, yeah, at the Jerry Dome. So, And that game's always close. So I know that you kind of uh, joked about lowly Arkansas, but um, I think Chad Morris has his team a little bit more competitive this year. But the last few, um, I can't remember what they call that game. Oh, the Southwest Classic. Uh, basically, okay. it's... Uh, you know, Jerry's boys, uh, his, his former Arkansas Razorbacks against, uh, you know, the, the, the big talk of, of Houston or the Houston area, the, the A&M Aggies. So that one will be, uh, closer on the radar than, than people might expect as well. So I'm going to, uh, jump over to the SEC East. And like you mentioned earlier in, in this cast, Kentucky was really the mid season miracle and everybody's darling at mid season. And they kind of, um, you know, saw midnight come and the glass slipper was, was too tight and it eventually fell off. But, um, who's the replacement for Benny Snell and what does this UK offense look like now without him? I think, uh, as a college football fan, I would have loved to see him stay one more year, but he's certainly ready for the next, uh, next stage in his career. So they bring AJ Rose back, who was their second leading rusher last year. He averaged 6.2 yards per carry. He stands 6'1", 210. Um, kind of a bigger body, but, uh, you know, got, got a quick burst as well. He, he ran for, uh, 104 yards against central Michigan last year. I'm talking about Rose, um, which included a 55 yard strike against the Chippewas. He also had a 112 yard rushing game against Louisville. Granted it was Louisville who was pretty much near the bottom in every statistical category last season. Um, and granted it was central Michigan, <laughs> right? Yeah. So, so you're going against the one in 11 chips and a Brian Van Gorder defense. So I'm going to, um, I'm going to say that this, uh, this was basically, uh, in the kiddie pool at that point. So, right. um, they also bring, Redshirt freshman, probably one of the best names in college football, Cavassier Smoke. Um, <laughs> Got to wonder what his... Just <laughs> seems like he's going to roll up in a caddy uh, wearing a, uh, a, a fur, pimp suit or something. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yep. Um, so he stands 5'9", but he's 225. He's a three-star, uh, former three-star recruit, but was recruited by many other SEC schools. Um by his own account, he's, he says he's been compared to as a poor man's Leonard Fournette, so we'll see how that pans out. Um, they also have retro freshman Chris Rodriguez and incoming three-star freshman Travis Tisdale. None of those guys are, are going to really be in the ballpark as Benny Snell, but you wonder if if they can get at least maybe 75% of the production that, that Snell had um, you know, this will be, this will bode well for that Kentucky offense, because if they have to turn it over to Terry Wilson and his arm, I don't see good things for, for UK. So do they try and spread it out and take advantage of Wilson's athleticism? I'm going to say, Bip, uh, getting a little bit, uh, speculative here. 
don't be surprised to see backup quarterback Gunnar Hoke wrestle the job away from Wilson if they can't get a run game going. Gunnar Hoke was a four-star guy that they brought in, uh, redshirted last year. By most accounts, he's he's a very smart, very cerebral guy. He's got a live arm um, and could be one of those NFL talents that Todd McShay will put on his board maybe in three years. So so keep an eye out for number 12 coming in at quarterback for, for UK. Um, either way, though, whoever's slinging the ball, they do have a pretty good cast of receivers to go to. Lynn Bowden, who was on my all-transfer wish list team this year, um, meaning somebody who I wish was in the transfer portal, and if he was there, I would snag him as receiver and return specialist. Um, guy is lightning at, in a bottle for, for the Wildcats, but they also have wide receivers Josh Ali and Ahmad Wagner, who was a transfer actually from Iowa's basketball team. He stands 6'7", 235 as a wide receiver, so he'll give them a, a pretty big target to throw to in the red zone. Um, you know, kind of reminds me of a Plaxico, Plaxico Burris type receiver who's got, you know, size and, and good hands and can post up and, and go high point the ball for you when you need it. Yeah. And I, I, I'm with you that, um, whoever they have running the ball for them for the, the majority of the carries this year, it's going to be predicated mainly on what they get from their quarterback play is Wilson actually completed 67% of his passes last year, but averaged only seven yards per attempt. So a lot of dinking and yeah. dunking um, also had a not very respectable 11 to eight touchdown to interception ratio. And he only threw for over 200 yards in three games, which were against Missouri and, and Georgia, which were pretty respectable, but Louisville um, was the third one. So you can kind of scratch that one off. So um, I'm with you. I, I, I wouldn't be uh, surprised at all if Gunnar Hoke at some point takes over for Terry Wilson, depending on how the season goes for the Wildcats, or do they really um, try to change that offense to, to give Terry Wilson even more freedom to freelance with the ball as he, he finished with over 500 yards rushing last year. Do we see an uptick in that? Or do we um, see that the fact that they don't have Benny Snell in the backfield carrying that offense, do they want to go with a, a, perhaps a better passer in Gunnar Hoke to try and open things up for those that uh, new group of running backs? Yep. Well, is that all you got, Bip? Yep, that's all I got, Chappie. Yep, same for me here. So, uh, well... Another set of questions, but we leave no doubt where you should continue to get your college football insight, and that's here on A Bowl Full of Chips. We love what we do, and we always want to work to bring you the insightful information and pertinent projections that will make you even more aware of the game you love and perhaps give you the analytical edge in making your picks against the spread, filling out your college football fantasy team, or to just prove to your buddies and maybe even a rival or two that you know more than they. So keep listening. Check out any of our previous episodes you may have missed. And as always, spread the word and help us be heard. So again, share, subscribe, review, and renew. Remember to interact with us on Twitter. You can be as complimentary or as critical as you wish. We love it. Thanks for tuning in to A Bowl Full of Chips, the answers to your college football questions. I am Chappie. And I am Bip. And we'll be back next time to set you straight, whether it's early or late. Cue the exit music, because like a fat man's will at a buffet line, we're gone. <laughs> See ya. See ya.